0: Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Christopher Hasiotis, sitting in this week for your regular host, Tracy V. Wilson. It's December 11th, and in one of the most pivotal moments of the French Revolution, King Louis XVI was indicted for high treason and crimes on this day in 1792. The man who would become France's final king before the French Revolution was born August 23rd, 1754 as Louis August. He was his parents' seventh pregnancy, but the first child to survive to adulthood. Louis Auguste was born during the reign of his grandfather, Louis XV, who was also known as Louis the Beloved and ruled France for nearly six decades. Now, Louis XV, Louis XVI predecessor, died of smallpox in May of 1774. Normally, Louis Auguste's father would have assumed the throne, but he had died of tuberculosis nine years earlier, so in 1774, Louis Auguste became Louis XVI, King of France. I know it's a lot of Louis Louis, but we can keep track. Now, Louis XVI was 19 years old at the time, and he was already married to Marie Antoinette of Austria. They'd been married for about four years at that point. Louis XVI, we'll just call him Louis from now on, Louis started his reign with an eye towards values that came out of the era of Enlightenment, greater freedom of the press, religious tolerance, and scientific inquiry, among other endeavors. Eliminating certain land taxes, increasing acceptance of non-Catholic Christians, abolishing serfdom, supporting the American Revolution, and even deregulating grain markets— These were all undertaken by Louis. Some were resisted and shot down by nobility, while other reforms were successful. It's those last two, though, that would prove to be pivotal. Deregulation of grain markets in France led to wild fluctuations in price. The common people struggled to afford bread or even the grain to make their own, and a number of riots broke out in 1775. That was a series of events often called the Bread War. And supporting the American Revolution the following year put France into serious debt, and the ensuing financial crisis was compounded by a Byzantine system of taxation. The next decade saw an erosion of the monarchy's credibility, and people came to view Louis and his wife Marie Antoinette as figures of not just an outdated system of governance, but one ignorant to the plight of the common people. Violence, civil unrest, and political turmoil became more prevalent. And Louis became increasingly irrelevant when it came to actual governance and gained a reputation for being indecisive, unskilled at political maneuvering, and just generally being out of touch with the realities of the day and the need for policy compromise. So on July 14th, 1789, a group of revolutionaries stormed the Bastille, which was a political prison in Paris. Though it only held seven prisoners at the time, the Bastille was viewed as symbolic of the monarchy's rule. Now, here's a side note. You may hear that Louis' journal for that day, July 14th, 1789, held only a single word, nothing, which a lot of people say signifies how out of touch he was. That journal was actually just a hunting journal, or a hunting log, so it's not really indicative of where Louis's head was at. And anyway, at the time, Louis was at the Palace of Versailles outside of Paris, and he only learned of the storming of the Bastille the following morning. So following these events, Louis was forced to accept the dissolution of the monarchy as it existed, and a constitutional monarchy was established. But after a failed assassination attempt on Marie Antoinette, Louis and his family relocated from Versailles outside of the city to the Tuileries Palace, which is right in the heart of the city, And the intent there was to be closer to the people. Now, in 1791, Louis tried to secretly flee the city in response to what he considered indignities and restraints placed upon him and his family by the constitutional government. He was being treated, he felt, a way a monarch should never be treated. On his way out of town, though, Louis left behind a political manifesto which outlined his dissatisfaction with the constitutional system. He considered it illegitimate. This manifesto was published in newspapers, though, making his true feelings public. And just four days after leaving Paris, Louis and his family were identified. He was recognized because his face was on the national currency, and he was arrested and returned to Paris. At this point, Louis lost all credibility, even with those who had stood by him, and he was viewed as more loyal to foreign governments rather than to his own people. Later that summer, on August 10th of 1792, the people of Paris had had enough. A group marched on the Tuileries Palace, and the royal family again fled, taking shelter with the Legislative Assembly. Louis XVI was found and arrested a few days later, and eventually taken to the Parisian prison known as the Temple. While he was imprisoned there, the government officially abolished the constitutional monarchy, declared a republic, and stripped Louis of all his titles and honors. So for the last few months of his life, Louis XVI was known as Citizen Louis Capet. That's the name that would have been his ancestral surname. Citizen Louis Capet's trial before the National Convention began on December 3, 1792. More than a week after the trial started, bringing us to today, December 11th, Louis was brought out of the temple and before the assembly, formally indicted. Now, there were 33 charges in total. These ranged from ordering the army to march on the citizens of Paris to attempting to flee the city, and from ignoring counter-revolutions to defanging the navy and ignoring foreign threats, particularly from Austria, where Marie Antoinette was from. The final of these 33 charges? You caused the blood of Frenchmen to flow. Louis, through his defense team, responded to his individual charges on December 26th, generally demanding proof, claiming he wasn't involved in certain decisions, saying he knew nothing of the claims, or, to borrow a more contemporary political phrase, passing the buck to his ministers and their decisions. Louis's lawyer, Raymond de Sez, argued the former king's case for three hours straight that day. And it wasn't until three weeks later that Louis XVI was convicted overwhelmingly of colluding with foreign powers. Now, 721 voters were tasked with choosing his punishment. There were four options, including life imprisonment or banishment from France. But on January twentieth, seventeen 1793, 361 of the voters, exactly 50% plus one vote, sentenced Louis to death. And on the very next day, citizen Louis Capet was executed by guillotine. The beheading took place in the Place de la Révolution, an open square where the revolutionary government conducted the majority of its public executions, It's the same spot where Robespierre, Olympe de Gouges, and Marie Antoinette, who followed her husband to the guillotine eight months later, were executed. The plaza went through a series of name changes and took the names of both Louis XV and Louis XVI, but in 1830 returned to its original name of Place de la Concorde. Today, located along the banks of the Seine, you'll find the Place de la Concorde full of obelisks and fountains. To learn more about this, Listen to the November 19th, 2008 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called How the French Revolution Worked, or scroll back on your podcast and find the November 2nd episode of this very podcast, which is the day Marie Antoinette was born. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever else you like to find your podcasts. And uh, stick around, because tomorrow we're going to learn about a disastrous explosion.
0: Hi everyone, I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast where we build the time machine and all you have to do is hop in. The day was December 11th, 1978. A group of robbers stole $5 million in cash and around $1 million in jewelry from the air cargo building of the Lufthansa Airline at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. Most of the people involved in the heist participated in organized crime, and the event has since been depicted in books and films, including Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Lufthansa cargo workers Louis Werner and Peter Gruenwald knew that about once a month, Lufthansa flew in large amounts of unmarked money that was exchanged in West Germany by tourists and military service people. Sometimes that cash wasn't transferred to banks until the next day, when trucks would pick it up to transport it. Werner and Gruenwald figured that that was the perfect opportunity to steal the cash. But Werner had a bunch of gambling debt, and he told bookmaker Martin Krugman about the heist plan. Krugman, in turn, took the idea to the Lucchese crime family mobster Henry Hill, and word soon made it to gangster James Burke, also known as Jimmy the Gent. Burke, Hill, and Werner then went about planning the heist, using information like maps, reports of employees who would be present, and details of the security measures that were in place in the building. Around 3 a.m. on December 11, 1978, a group of armed men in a black van pulled up to the cargo hold's loading platform. Several of the men entered the building while the van was driven to the back of the site. They restrained the employees and ordered a supervisor to open the vault so the alarm would not trigger. They loaded the money and jewelry into the van and drove away, later transferring their haul to other vehicles. The robbery took just over an hour. At the time, it was the largest cash theft ever in the US. The van driver, Parnell Edwards, was supposed to take the van to a junkyard that the mob controlled, but he parked it illegally on the street in Brooklyn instead. The van was soon discovered, along with Edwards' fingerprints and footprint. Not long after, Edwards was murdered. And within months, several other people suspected of committing the crime were murdered or disappeared. Hill went into the witness protection program, and in 1980, he began testifying against the people involved in the robbery. Other informants in the case also entered the witness protection program. Investigators suspected James Burke of orchestrating the heist, but there wasn't enough evidence to connect Burke to the heist or murders. He died in prison in 1996 after he was incarcerated for other crimes. The only person ever convicted of the robbery was Louis Werner. Vincent Asaro, part of the Bonanno crime family, was arrested on robbery charges related to the heist in 2014, but he was acquitted the next year. Only a portion of the stolen money was recovered. Worth around $6 million in 1978, the hall would be worth $24 million in 2019. I'm Eve Shefcote, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you haven't gotten your fill of history yet, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. You can also email us at, at com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.